I would like to begin this lecture with a bold statement about Robin Hood's identity. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that there was a physical person called Robin Hood, who is the progenitor of our mythical Robin Hood. Neither the most diligent archivist nor the most inventive historian has been able to find him. Yet despite this fact, Robin Hood still has a place in the definitive Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, and there's the start of what it has to say about him. He is, therefore, one of those liminal characters who have a place in a work of national history, even though their historicity is, to say the least, doubtful. But this statement about his historical reality in no way belittles the importance of Robin, both to us now and to those who lived in the medieval period and who had Robin as part of their imaginative framework. Just like his literary counterpart, King Arthur, who equally has a place in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, despite the fact that there's no historical evidence for his existence either, uh, Robin has a central part to play in the medieval imagination. But unlike Arthur, who was a character with an extensive medieval literature, Robin Hood was a man of the people. If Arthur was the hero of the French-speaking elite of the court, then Robin was his counterpart in the tavern and in the May Games, celebrated in some villages of medieval England. And because Robin was a hero in medieval popular culture and did not become popular with aristocrats until the 16th century, he's a figure without a literary culture until the 16th century. We're therefore in the case of the medieval Robin Hood in the realm of memory rather than written record. The medieval Robin Hood is a character of orality, not literature. And yet it's only through literature that we can approach him for the obvious reason that the written record is the written record uh, which conveys to us across time something of his character. Now, I'll have something to say about the literary record of Robin Hood in a moment. But first of all, I want to say something about the May Games with which Robin Hood was associated and in which he became hugely popular in the second half of the 15th century. Because it's his presence in the May Games that tells us something about his popularity amongst the ordinary people of medieval England. The May Games marked the traditional start of summer and were part of a wider annual cycle in which medieval men and women marked the changing seasons. The first half of the year was given over to a focus on the religious cycle. It began with the Christmas festivities, starting uh, with Advent, of course, and ending on the Epiphany on the 6th of January. Uh, Christmas was, therefore, the transitional phase from one year to the next. Spring began on the 2nd of February, the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to be followed by Lent and the preparation for the greatest of the Christian festivals, Easter. Easter, of course, is a movable feast tied to the movements of the, uh, the moon. So Lent might begin as early as the 4th of February or as late as the 10th of March. Summer began on the 1st of May. I hope you've noticed that the sun did come out today. <laughs> and the May Games, which mark the celebration associated with summer, began at Whitson. And again, because it's related to uh, Easter, that could be as early as the 10th of May or as late as the 13th of June. And then these games uh, went on until midsummer, after which the year moved into its secular phase, where there were no significant religious festivities or long holidays. 
the May games which marked the beginning of summer were the occasion for the appearance of Robin Hood. The person who was to play the part of Robin would be elected from amongst the better sort in the community, sometimes at Easter, sometimes at Ascension Day. And at the same point, the person playing the part of Maid Marian, his companion in the May games, would also be chosen. Again from the better sort in the community, Robin was to be the Lord of Misrule, and if that misrule were not to get out of hand, the person chosen for the role needed to be trustworthy. But that man was also young. The summer season was a celebration of youth, of young love, of courtship. Those playing the role of Robin Hood had to be of the appropriate age and, the condi and condition in life. And Robin's role with his companions, Little John, Friar Turk, accompanied by Maid Marian, was to go out into the community to raise money, which would then be handed over to the church for pious works. Robin then was cast in the role of the young outlaw, taking money from the rich and handing it to the poor. He was dressed in green because he represented summer, and he was the lord of misrule, so he be could be counted on to make a bit of a commotion. Now, these May games tell us that the name Robin Hood was well known to men and women in late medieval England. And as William Langland, Langland makes the illiterate and lazy priest, who he calls Sloth, say in Piers Plowman, I know not my paternoster as the priest it singeth, but I know the rhymes of Robin Hood. He then goes on to tell, um, um, tell us that he likes spending his time uh, harleting and in the pub drinking and playing games. He was supposed to be a priest. Now, Langland was writing about the year 1377. So Robin had a place in everyday life in 14th century England, and he was associated with the lower end of society, the alehouse, the whorehouse, the places where the summer games took place. There is, however, a really important caveat about Robin Hood's existence in the May games of late medieval England, and that is that he did not exist everywhere. When scholars have gone looking for Robin Hood and his gang in the May games, they found him only in Scotland, the south of England, and the southwest of England. He doesn't appear in Wales, uh, he doesn't appear in East Anglia apart from uh, one instance, and nor does he appear anywhere in the north. In fact, Robin Hood is entirely um, absent from the late medieval May games in any of the locations in which you'd expect him to be found. So he's not in Nottingham, for example, or Nottinghamshire, and he's not to be found in the north, most especially not in Yorkshire, where, as we shall see in a moment, many of his adventures took place. The medieval Robin Hood, therefore, was part of the imaginative landscape of people of the South when they were thinking about the North, the North, that scary place for all Southern people, of course. So we know that Robin Hood was well known in certain parts of late medieval England, the Thames Valley, the Severn Valley, the West Country, and in the separate kingdom of Scotland, remembering that Scotland was a separate kingdom at this point. And we know that he was the harbinger of summer, a symbol of fertility, a lord of misrule, that he played a role in relieving people of their hard-earned cash and handing it onto the church to be used in pious works. The celebrations that accompanied Robin, Robin's appearance, were dissolute, involving dancing, drinking, the unlicensed acquisition of the flora which decorated the bowers and arbours that were set up in church grounds. And the Maypole, was the centre, which was the central uh, attraction, um, was also uh, acquired by um, stealth. And we have here this 
rather nice Betley window dating from about 1621, but seemingly, um, seemingly um, copied from an earlier, probably late 15th century um, set of figures. And I hope you can see um, here the central figure. There is the maypole. And these are the characters. This is Maid Marian, and this is supposed to be uh, Friar Tuck. Now, at the outset of this talk, I stated that the medieval Robin Hood is a character of orality and not of literature. And yet it's only really through literature that we can come to grips with him. But the written evidence that we have for the medieval Robin Hood is very sparse indeed and re must represent a small fraction of the stories that were circulating about our hero in these outlaw tales. So I want to devote um, this section of the lecture to those medieval tales. And by medieval tales, I'm trying to be very strict with myself and thinking um, only in terms of pre-Reformation tales, tales that have a definite pre-Reformation uh, provenance. And I'll come back to why that matters um, later on in the lecture. Now, by far and away, the largest collection of medieval ballads that we have concerning uh, Robin Hood... Uh, are encapsulated in the cycle known as the Jest of Robin Hood. There's no surviving manuscript of the Jest. All the versions have survived to the modern world uh, have done so in printed editions. But the earliest printed editions predate the Reformation by some years. Now, the Jest runs to about 14,000 words, which makes it by far and away the longest pre-Reformation Robin Hood uh, uh, stories. And it's been postulated that the jest was brought together uh, by a single author from a series of stories about Robin Hood, which were circulating in the uh, late 15th, early 16th centuries. And perhaps that speculation is correct. Um, the first publisher of the jest was this man, Winkin de Word. It's a fantastic name, isn't it? But he was William Caxton's successor after that man's death in 1492. And he seems to have been a man of considerable entrepreneurial acumen. Um, Winkin was in the business of making money out of printing, and he did it very successfully indeed. His first printing was the hugely popular Golden Legend, which was hugely popular in late medieval England and sold lots of copies for him. And by about 1506, so very shortly after he'd taken over Caxton's business, he was publishing this, The Little Jest of Robin Hood. And I think that that speaks uh, strongly to the suggestion that he, he intended to introduce an already popular Robin Hood to a literate audience. The jest is part of the literate history of, 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 of Robin Hood. And thereafter, the jest of Robin Hood was reprinted throughout the 16th century. Now, the Robin Hood of the jest is, in fact, two distinct characters. The first Robin Hood is in the mould of King Arthur, and like King Arthur, this first Robin Hood of the jest does not play a central role in the story. The focus of the jest is on the actions of others. And while Robin is crucial to the tale, he acts as a catalyst for others to act, while he holds court in the Green Wood, named as Barnsdale in Yorkshire, uh, not um, Sherwood Forest. And so the jest opens with Robin in the Greenwood. And here he is. Lithe and listen, gentlemen, that be of freeborn blood. I shall you tell of a good yeoman. His name was Robin Hood. Robin was a prude outlaw whilst he walked on ground. So courtesy an outlaw as he, he was one was never non-found. Robin stood in Barnsdale and lent him to a tree, and by him stood little John, a good yeoman was he. 
and also did good scarlock and much the miller's son. There was none inch of his body that was worth a groan. So immediately we know that this story is about Robin Hood, since he's named in the first stanza, after which we are told the, the essential elements of the man. He's a yeoman, he's proud of his status as an outlaw, he's not a dangerous outlaw, but a courteous one. He lives in Barnsdale, his right-hand man is Little John, also of yeoman stock, and his principal men are Will Scarlock and Much the Miller's son. So far, so good. He's almost recognisable as our Robin Hood, though he is in Barnsdale Forest and not in Sherwood Forest, which is slightly discombobulating, I know. And the, the, um, the um, tale goes on. And then spake little John uh, all unto Robin Hood, Master, and ye would dine be time, and would do you much good. Then bespack him, good Robin, to dine I have no lust, till that I have some bold baron or some unketh guest, till that I have some bold baron that may pay for the best, or some knight or some squire that dwelleth by west. Encouraged by little John to eat, Robin declines, saying that he has no desire to eat unless he has the company of somebody who can pay for the best food and drink whether he be a baron, a knight, a squire, or some other unknown guest. This too is recognisably our Robin Hood, who demands that those brought to the Greenwood are dined and wined and then pay for the privilege. Uh, but then the tone of the jest changes. A good manner then had Robin, in land where he were, every day or he would dine, three masses would he hear, the one in the worship of the Father, the other in the Holy Ghost, the third of our dear lady that he loved all the most. Robin loved our dear lady for doubt of deadly sin. Would he never do company harm that any woman was in? Master then, said little John, and we our board shall spread. Tell us whether what that we shall go and what life we shall lead. Where shall we take? Where shall we leave? Where shall we abide behind? Where shall we rob and where shall we reeve and where shall we beat and bind? So here's Robin, characterised as being extremely religious. He hears three masses of a day before he will even eat. Even kings only heard two masses a day, so three is extreme. Two of these masses are dedicated to a particular part of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Ghost, but the third is dedicated to the Virgin Mary. It's a strange sort of Trinity, not at all what one might expect from a text expressing the extreme religiosity of its principal character, since it's hardly orthodox. But the point is that Robin is dedicated to the Virgin Mary. That Marian cult was especially strong in the late Middle Ages, so in dedicating himself to the Virgin, Robin was being utterly conventional, even if in the expression of that dedication, he was acting in a manner which was zealous. This is not our modern Robin Hood, though in being unwilling to harm neither a lady nor the company in which she was in, he is a bit of our chivalrous Robin Hood. The key point of departure for, her, for us then is his religiosity, but what I want you to focus on is the fact that little John asks Robin to set the band a task, or if we were being Arthurian about it, to set the band a quest. 
the quest isn't exactly the Holy Grail, it's just somebody for, uh, for Robin to dine with. But nonetheless, it is a quest. Little John and his companions have to find somebody who, um, who Robin can dine with because until they can find Robin a guest, he must go hungry. Now, I want you to lodge that in your minds for a little while because I'm going to come back to it. Robin doesn't eat until he has a proper guest. Now, the first person that the companions find is a knight who's fallen on hard times. They bring him back to the forest. The knight is dined magnificently. Robin asks the knight to pay for his fare, and the knight is forced to admit that he does not have the means to pay for his sumptuous meal, having but ten shillings on his person. Little John checks the knight's possessions and finds that he's telling the truth. The knight then recounts the tale of his woes. His son killed a knight of Lancaster, and so he had to pay the blood price, an extremely large £400. The knight mortgaged his lands to the abbot of St Mary's at York, and now the debt was due to be paid, but the knight did not have the means to pay it. Robin then orders little John to provide the knight with twice what he needs to dress him in fine quality clo clothing as befitting his knightly uh, station. And much humour is had at the way in which little John hands out the cloth in an overly generous manner. The knight then takes his leave, promising to do so, uh, promising, uh, or swearing to by the Virgin Mary, there she is again, to return to Robin and to pay him back um, what, um, what he um, uh, owes him. And then the last bit of this um, fit, the last bit of the, uh, this, this section ends, I shall thee lend little John, my man, for he shall be thy knave. In a yeoman's stead he may thee stand, if though great need have. That's the end of the first fit. Now, in the second fit, Robin has absolutely no part to play whatsoever. Yet, he is actually very much present in the way the, uh, the action is presented, because he becomes now the paradigm of good virtual, virtues, chivalric virtues even, against which all are now measured. The scene switches to York, where the knight, now with the means of repaying his loan, appears at St Mary's Abbey. This is the day on which the loan must be repaid or the knight's lands are forfeit. So the abbot should be expecting the knight. Worse still, the abbot, with the justiciar, who's very much in his pay, and with the cellarer, who's the man in charge of the abbey's estates, have been plotting what to do with the land that is coming their way. When the knight and his company arrive, the abbot has already started to eat. Note the contrast with Robin, who courteously waits for a guest before he will dine. And when the knight enters the hall, the abbot continues to eat, keeping the knight standing even, and certainly not inviting the knight to join the meal. When the knight pretends that he does not have the means to pay the debt, the abbot gratuitously enjoys the moment until the knight produces the, catch, uh, the cash, much to the abbot's discomfort. The knight returns to his lands, gathers the money he owes to Robin, and with the company of a hundred men begins the journey to Barnsdale. The second fit ends with the knight being delayed in his mission, waylaid by the desperate plight of a young man threatened with death. So he's going to be late to repay Robin. In the third fit, the action switches to Nottingham, where little John leaves the knight's service to join the service of the sheriff of Nottingham. 
He tricks the sheriff into taking him on, and then he deliberately behaves like a bad servant and eventually leads his new, ma leads his new master to Barnsdale Forest, where Robin Hood dines the sheriff at the sheriff's expense and little John returns to Robin's service. It's a riotously funny fit, all at the sheriff's expense. And it's worth noting at this point that this is the first time when, when Little John comes back to Robin, it's the first time that Robin Hood has been seen since the first fit. He's been absolutely absent from the story for 89 stanzas while Little John and the knight have taken centre stage. In the fourth fit, Robin Hood is waiting for the knight to keep his appointment. And unlike the abbot before him, he cannot eat before the appointed hour of the knight's return. He's also worried that the Virgin Mary is angry with him because the knight is now late for his appointment. Little John, Will Scarlock and much the miller's son are sent again on an errand to find Robin a guest before he can eat. This time the crew happen upon the cellar of St Mary's Abbey. You remember him? He was looking forward to enjoying the uh, knight's lands, wasn't he? But as they looked in Barnsdale by the highway, then they were, they were uh, of two black monks, each on a good palfrey. Then bespack little John to much he gan say, I dare lay my life to weed, that's a pledge, that these monks have brought our pay. And here is one of the principal jokes that the jester's been uh, working towards. The monks are, of course, the monks of St Mary's Abbey York, dedicated to... Yes, the Virgin Mary. Robin, too, is dedicated to, yes, the Virgin Mary. But he performs his dedication not by stealing land from the unfortunate knights, but by putting right wrongs, by helping, not predating on those experiencing difficult times. The Virgin hasn't abandoned Robin, nor is she cross with him. On the contrary, she intends that Robin should receive back the money he lent to the knight from the very Abbey of St Mary's. The cellarer who has been looking forward to enjoying the night's land in fit one is the principal monk. He's whined, he's dined, lies to Robin about how much money he has in his sacks, then is forced to pay £800 for the privilege of his meal. At the end of the fit, the knight arrives, ready to pay Robin what he owes, but Robin replies, it's all right, um, I've been repaid by the Virgin Mary. The joke is blatant, I know, and it's really hard won. None of the humour in the ballads is exactly subtle, but it is actually quite good fun. In the fifth fit, the second Robin Hood emerges. Remember, we've been talking about one Robin Hood who looks like um, King Arthur. In the second par part of the uh, jest of Robin Hood, beginning in the fifth fit, the second Robin Hood emerges. So he's no longer the king of the greenwood holding court and sending his men on quests. Now he takes centre stage and we see him driving forward the story. There's an archery competition in Nottingham, which Robin wins. This is our Robin Hood, of course, the master archer. And then he has to make his escape. The outlaws take refuge with the knight they have helped in the first fit. In the sixth fit, the sheriff appeals to the king. The knight is captured. Robin Hood and his men go to Nottingham, kill the sheriff... Notice, a death here, and then return with the knight to Barnsdale to await the arrival of the king's pardon. The king, at this moment, is named as Edward. Robin as sheriff killer is not our Robin, and now we see, too, that the jest is not set in the reign of Richard the Lionheart in the early 1190s, but, in fact, in the reign of one of the Edwards, so sometime between 1272 and 1377. 
King Edward arrives in Nottingham at the beginning of the seventh fit. He disguises himself as an abbot and takes with him five of his best knights, attired as monks, and sure enough, Robin waylays the disguised king, dines him, then recognises his king, then begs the king for forgiveness. In the eighth fit, the two return to Nottingham. Robin serves the king for a year, but then returns to the forest to take up his former life again, where he lives a further 22 years before being killed by the treachery of the prioress of Kirklees, Robin's kinswoman. So now we've got three late medieval Robin Hoods. The one, the character of the May Games, who has a female companion in Maid Marian, who, in the company of Little John and Friar Tuck, emerges each Whitson to celebrate the arrival of summer, takes money from the people in the community and hands it to the ch uh, church for use on goods, good works. And he's the Lord of Misrule, when drinking and riotous games are the order of the day. The second Robin Hood is this Arthurian figure who sends his men on quests, who is overly religious, even in the context of a religious society of his day, has two companions not even mentioned in the May Games, Scarlock and Much, has no love interest, there's no maid Marian, has no Friar Tuck in his company. The third Robin Hood is a much more active Robin Hood, one who wins an archery competition, justifiably kills the Sheriff of Nottingham, is a hero to his men, even rescues little John from certain death, but is a loyal subject of King Edward. These three Robin Hoods, while all recognisably Robin Hoods, are all very different from one another. We find a fourth type of Robin Hood in our medieval sources. In what is widely regarded as the best medieval of the medieval ballads, Robin Hood and the Monk, the character that emerges from the text is an even more complex one than the three we have already met. In its earliest surviving uh, form, the ballad dates from about 1450, and it does exist in manuscript form, unlike, uh, as we've seen, the jest. Robin is the same religious enthusiast, and this time he complains that he has not heard mass for more than a fortnight, and so he determines that he must go to Nottingham to hear a mass. His men advise him against going, and when Robin protests his determination to, to go, they advise him to go with a crowd of his men. Robin refuses to heed that advice and says that, of all my merry men, said Robin, be my faith I will none have, but little John shall bear my bow till that me list to draw. Little John's immediate response is to say to Robin, Thou shalt bear thine own, said little John, Master, and I will bear mine, and we shall shed a penny, said little John, under the greenwood line. Robin at first refuses the challenge, and when he does eventually accept it, he loses the contest so badly that he ends up owing little John five shillings. That's an awful lot of losses, 60 losses. Robin denies that he owes little John the money, calls him a liar, and then slaps him. Little John responds by bringing out his sword and telling Robin that he no longer wishes to serve in his band. With that, Robin stalks off to Nottingham, enters the church where he's recognised by a monk who calls out the hue and cry, is captured and then put in prison. Ironically, by this point, Robin has still not heard his much-wished-for mass. The remainder of the story focuses on the attempt by Little John to spring his master from Nottingham jail. The rescue that Little John and his companions now concoct is one that involves the murder of the monk, the murder of his page boy, both buried in unmarked graves by the side of the road, 
the impersonation of the sheriff's man to the king by little John, and therefore the false acquisition of the king's seal, the use of the royal seal to gain entry to Nottingham Castle, and then the release of Robin. At the end of the, two, the story, the two companions make up. Robin admits that he's been very foolish, and little John forgives his master, and the two return to their company in the green wood. The king, at the end, is left to wonder at the loyalty of little John to Robin Hood, as are we too, for Robin has contempt been contemptuous of his companion. Perhaps we are supposed to think that the love of friendship is stronger than the other forces in the land, the king, the law, the sheriff, the prison, and that friendship can even overcome the failure of one friend to respect another. This Robin Hood is therefore a liability, still recognisably Robin Hood, but behaving in a way which is reckless. He's petulant, like a teenager. He manages to alienate his constant friend, little John. And as a result of his foolish behaviour, he falls into the hands of his mortal enemy, the Sheriff of Nottingham. He's, he is not now the loyal subject of the king, and the king is left to lament the fact that little John and much the miller's son are far more loyal to Robin than they are to the king. That Robin was, rescue, was rescued owed more to the dogged loyalty of the outlaw band led by little John than it did to Robin's ability as a swordsman or indeed as an archer. And Robin's release was engineered by little John's ability to be a trickster, just as he was a trickster in the jest when he spent a year working for the Sheriff of Nottingham. Nottingham. And this Robin Hood is no longer in Barnsdale. Hooray! We finally found him in Sherwood. The sheriff made to seek uh, Nottingham, both by Strett and Stye, in other words, by um, street and alleyway. And Robin was in merry Sherwood, as light as a leaf on Lind. So, in fact, now we have four distinct Robin Hoods. One, the Robin of the May Games, located in Scotland, the Thames Valley, the Severn Valley in the West Country. Two, the Robin who is like King Arthur, keeping court in the Greenwood in Barnsdale Forest and sending his men on quests. Three, the central character in trials of skill and strength, but intensely loyal to his king. And four, the petulant teenage-like Robin Hood of Sherwood Forest, who recklessly puts his and his men's lives in danger and has to be rescued by his band of men, and who is certainly not loyal to the king. These are, uh, there are, of course, constants in each of these Robins. The Greenwood, archery, as indeed is the fact that Robin is an outlaw and that he's devoted to the Virgin Mary. But in each of the cases I have outlined for you this evening, Robin Hood is fu a fundamentally different character. The engine that drives the narrative of Robin is different each time. In, time. in May Games, it's the celebration of summer and young love and the raising of money for the local church. In the jest, it's a quest, a part of the cycle, and then an adventure. In the monk, it's the rescue of Robin from his own folly. In Robin Hood and the Potter, which I don't propose to discuss in detail tonight, the location of Robin's hideaway returns to Barnsdale Forest, and the engine that drives the narrative is the trick on the Sheriff of Nottingham. It might be worth noting it at this point that apart from um, the Virgin Mary, who I don't suppose counts in this regard, the one love interest that the medieval Robin Hood has in the ballads is with the Sheriff's wife. Um, she obviously likes Robin and takes quite a bit of pleasure from the Sheriff's discomfiture when he returns home from a bruising encounter with Robin in the green Greenwood. Another of the medieval tales um, is Robin and Guy of Gisborne. Again, the hideaway is in Barnsdale Forest. 
The engine in this one is the retribution on the Sheriff of Nottingham for having, a, uh, having hired an assassin, Guy of Gisborne, to kill, um, uh, to kill Robin. The retribution is the only one that counts in this tale. Guy is killed, his face is disfigured, his head is chopped off and stuck on the end of a, of, of, of a pike. The sheriff is also dispatched to meet his maker. Robin shows no mercy to his would-be assassin, nor to the man who hired him. The body count in this tale is five, plus some other sundry people in red tops, including two of Robin's men, making it a thoroughly violent piece in the context of uh, the Robin Hood oeuvre. In the jest, the first Robin is gentrified, perhaps even more so turned into the king of the green wood. The second Robin is a bit more of a ruffian, but his connection to the prioress suggests that he, he, he was more than a simple yeoman. In The Monk and the Potter and in Guy of Gisborne, Robin is firmly of yeoman stock. In the May Games, Robin is likewise a man of the people, even if he, cho if he is chosen from the better sort of the community. At no point in the medieval tales is Robin raised to the aristocracy. The outlawed Earl of Huntingdon, Robert of Loxley, is an entirely post-medieval character. Now, somehow or another, we have to explain why Robin Hood is so different whenever we meet him in a text or in a situation. And I think that the answer is that he was a vehicle on whom it was possible to place whatever Robin Hood one wanted. Robin never was a single character, even from his inception. Rather, he was multiple characters on whom was laid the story or celebration that suited the times. There was no one Robin Hood. As an individual human being, I don't think he ever existed. As a character, he existed in multiple forms, the vast majority of which have been lost to us because those forms were part of an oral culture. The written forms that we have are the ones that very few people decided to set down in writing. And we shouldn't be surprised to find our Robin appearing in almost any uh, situation. And here he is in the muniments of Lincoln Cathedral, for example. Here's a reference to Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest in a form not known elsewhere. So this particular rhyme is in uh, English and in Latin. Robin Hood in Sherwood stood, hooded, hatted, hosed, and shod. Four and twenty arrows he bar in his hands. And then it's translated into Latin by the same uh, writer, perhaps a boy learning his grammar. As we've seen so far in the literary texts, Robin was firmly entrenched in Barnsdale, and although he went often to Nottingham, only once was he to be found in Sherwood Forest. And then it was only escaping from Nottingham Jail. So it looks more like Sherwood was an immediate haven from the sheriff's men rather than a permanent hideaway uh, of the outlaw band, which obviously the, uh, Barnsdale Forest had, that status that Barnsdale Forest had. And yet, in this uh, graffito on a 13th century manuscript of John Garland's grammar in Lincoln Cathedral we can see that there's a strong link between Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest, and it was alive in the minds of schoolboys at Lincoln at the end of the 15th century. Were it not for this one chance reference, we might be tempted to think that Robin's permanent base in Sherwood Forest is almost entirely a post-Reformation uh, creation, and only really established in the 17th century. And what this reminds us 
is the fragility of the link that connects the medieval tales of Robin Hood um, to us in the modern age. I think the further interest of this piece is that it's a poem, and it's in the West Midlands dialect, and the metre is rhyming couplets. Nothing now in existence of the medieval Robin Hood corpus is preserved in this manner. But it seems likely that there was a thriving oral poetical culture swishing around in the heads of bored schoolboys who wanted to be somewhere else rather than in the schoolroom. And I should say, if you're looking at this and you're struggling to read it, the reason you're struggling to read it is because the handwriting is execrable. And if you're struggling to read the Latin and you're looking at the Latin and you're thinking, well, I'm quite good at Latin, why can't I read that? The reason is because the Latin is execrable too. This is a student who sat at the back of the class and dreamt of running free of his lessons and into the Greenwood to join the legendary band of outlaws. He obviously wasn't one of the top pupils in that particular class. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the aristocratic Robin Hood, the disgraced Earl of Huntingdon, who also went by the name of Robert of Loxley, is not a medieval character and seems to have been in an entirely late creation. He was, unlike his yeoman, counter yeoman counterpart, a character of writing, not of orality. He was created at the end of the 16th century to satisfy a demand for a Robin Hood who could be played in front of the highest in the land. The author of the piece that turned Robin Hood into the Earl of Huntington was a man called Anthony Munday who wrote his downfall of Robert Earl of Huntingdon as a romantic comedy to be performed by the Admiral's men at the Christmas court in 1598. Presumably, therefore, no lesser person than Queen Elizabeth I saw Monday's play about Robin Hood. It's in Monday's Robin Hood that the character emerges almost fully formed as we know him. The scene is set in the reign of Richard the Lionheart. That makes us comfortable, doesn't it? Who's away on crusade. Prince John is present. That also makes us comfortable because we know he's there. And Eleanor of Aquitaine and Maid Marian is there. Maid Marian is the love interest of the Earl of Huntingdon. And uh, Prince John is the rival for Maid Marian's affections. Meanwhile, and I'm not sure what Queen Elizabeth thought of this, uh, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine is supposed to have had a love interest for the uh, Earl of Huntingdon. She'd have been a 70-year-old by that stage. The Earl is outlawed and takes the name Robin Hood. He settles in Sherwood Forest with his men, including Little John, Will Scarlet, Friar Tuck, Much the Miller's son, and his principal enemy is the Sheriff of Nottingham. They live happily in the woods. Marion joins Robin, though she remains chaste until Robin is pardoned and they can be properly married. And the crew swears an oath to protect the poor. Prince John rules in his brother's absence and abuses his power. King Richard returns and Robin is pardoned, but decides to remain insured. All that is missing is the name of Robert of Loxley. That association had to wait until the 17th century, probably, when in a manner which I don't quite understand uh, yet, Robin was given an entirely fictional uh, pedigree. So here we have a society of antiquaries, a uh, commonplace book presented to the Society on the 23rd of May, 1721. The Society of Antiquaries has been in existence since um, 1707, and William Stukeley was one of their um, earliest um, uh, senior fellows. And it's his commonplace book, 
and you go through it, and what you discover is there's this, as I've shown you, this wonderful pedigree of, 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 of Robin Hood. And there he is. I can't quite see it with the reading glasses on. Hopefully you can see it. Can you see it? Here's Robert Fitz, commonly called Robin Hood, the famous outlaw and Earl of Huntingdon, who uh, died in 1247. I have no idea where he got that date from. And here's the Lockley bit, because he's drawn you a nice little um, line here. And you can see up here, he's got a grandfather who is uh, a man of uh, Loxley. Loxley is an entirely fictional place. You would have thought a chap um, who was so high up in the Society of Antiquaries would know that there was no such place as Loxley, but that didn't seem to worry him when he was looking for um, the, um, the uh, origins of uh, Robin Hood. So just like the editors of the ODMB, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, um, uh, William uh, Stukeley, the Reverend William Stukeley, thought of Robin Hood as a real uh, person. The Loxley name first appears as a pseudonym for Robin Hood in a 17th century text, which is supposed to describe an encounter between Robin and Queen Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's first wife, when she's supposed to have given Robin the alias of Loxley. So what you've got here is all these tales being jammed together to create, um, in certainly uh, William Stukeley's mind, the real uh, Robin Hood. This, it seems to me, is the Robin Hood of literature, not of oral culture. And it is the Robin Hood who is acceptable to polite society. But he's not the medieval Robin Hood. The Robin Hood of this lecture was a man of the people, and hence his literary footprint is very sparse indeed. This upper-class Robin Hood was to have a much larger literary presence, and hence the impact on our own imaginations of Robin Hood today. And if you're aware of the uh, French uh, Robin de Bois, who's the Prince of the Thieves, brought to the French by Alexander Dumas, this is exactly the Robin Hood that they um, have today. When writing this lecture for tonight, I tried to think how I might characterise the medieval Robin Hood to a modern audience in a way that could push home my main message. And I concluded that the way to help you see how we should view the medieval Robin Hood is to encourage you to see him as a superhero. But not a superhero like Spider-Man or Batman, but a particular sort of Superman. In fact, not a man at all, but a Time Lord. There have been 13 Doctor Whos, each one played by a different actor, each one with a different characteristic, but each one is undoubtedly Doctor Who. Whether the Doctor is the zany Tom Baker, that's my Doctor Who, or the clown-like Sylvester McCoy, or the frankly slightly threatening Christopher Eccleston, he's recognisably Doctor Who. And we've now got a new Doctor Who, haven't we? Who's going to be played by a female actor, Jodie Whittaker. The change of gender will make no difference whatsoever to our understanding of the role. She, like all her predecessors, is a Time Lord. She will travel through time and space in the TARDIS, disguised as a 1920s police box. That's her Greenwood, if you like. She will have adventures where she will heroically save the world using wit, not violence, but wit, above all else. She will inexplicably like human beings, even though we are self-destructive and childlike in our actions. 
and there will be a human assistant. In Whitaker's case, I think there are going to be three human assistants. The doctor makes the difference in the struggle between good and evil. Without the doctor, evil would prevail. The similarities between Robin Hood and Doctor Who don't end there. As one of my brightest students from last year noticed, because Doctor Who is an outlaw too, on the run from the authorities of Gallifrey, the Doctor's home planet. But for my purposes today, the real importance of Doctor Who, or that Doctor Who comparison, is that the stories change as the character of the Doctor changes. He, she, is a character on which to hang a whole variety of stories and in which to invest a whole variety of personalities, all of which are re recognisably Doctor Who, but all of whom are different from one another. The medieval Robin Hood, like the modern Doctor Who, was a work of fiction, created by people who wanted a character, who answered the fundamental needs that medieval men, women and children had. And one of those needs was, of course, entertainment. Errol Flynn, highly entertaining, one of my favourite Robin Hood characters. It's very clear that the May Games were moments of celebration, which, when the religious climate changed, brought down the opprobrium of the zealots of the age. The impact of the Reformation on the Robin Hood May Games was profound, in part because the Reformation broke the traditional cycles of the ritualistic year. That half of the year, which stretched from Christmas to Midsummer, was expunged from the calendar or so altered as to make it unrecognisable, and Robin Hood suffered as a consequence of that. Robin also answered a need which we all have within us, I think, to believe in the triumph of good over evil. Even if evil holds most of the trump cards, we need to like, we feel like, or we need to feel like we are participating in a just world. And it seems to me that the medieval Robin Hood texts show that our forebears were no different. They too needed to feel that their world was just even if the people who wielded power in their world, the abbot, the sheriff, the monastic official, held most of the trump cards. And humour was absolutely central to the medieval Robin Hood tales. Even when the action gets bloody and people get killed, the humour of the events comes through uh, strongly. We're supposed to laugh a great deal in these when we're participating in the Robin Hood uh, tales and when we encounter the medieval Robin Hood because for us you me the audience he's a safe outlaw he's not a threatening outlaw he's not the real outlaw he's isn't going to attack us the ordinary man and woman in the street he's not the real threatening outlaw he's the outlaw that we can meet and who won't take from us our hard-earned money and one of the crucial points, it seems to me, about our medieval Robin Hood is he just is Robin Hood. He never becomes Robin Hood. He lives in the forest, Barnsdale mostly, perhaps Sherwood, where he is happy to carry on the life of the outlaw. There's no backstory to our Robin. We just, there he is, our Robin Hood, and we know who he is. And we're invited to laugh a lot. We're invited to laugh at the people who are more stupid than ourselves. And the sheriff is often more stupid than we would be. And we're invited to enjoy the slapstick humour, which is usually directed at the people in power, using their offices corruptly. And we're supposed to cheer as well as the bad guys get their just punishment. 
The real outlaws of medieval England, Hereward the Wake, Eustace the Monk, Fulk Fitzwarren, all of whom had tales written about them and about which I could talk at length if I had time, perhaps another time, were figures of popular times and places. One's a freedom fighter, one's a pirate, one's a marcher baron. So they're tied by time and place. The real Robin Hood is a character of the medieval imagination, infinitely adaptable within the confines of being Robin Hood, of course, but infinitely adaptable. And this is my own favourite Robin Hood. I thought I'd share my own favourite Robin Hood with you. It is, in fact, Frank Sinatra in Robin and the Seven Hoods. It's a fantastic evocation, I think, of the spirit of the Robin Hood tales, and it's set in 1930s Chicago, uh, and because it's a musical, it gets the essence of the medieval Robin Hood perfectly, because the texts I've been talking about have been texts that were sung, and I haven't sung to you tonight, which is very remiss of me, uh, but they were texts that were sung, they weren't texts that were read um, it's not just orality, but it's also singing. It's also it's, it's about singing. The May games are about singing. They're all about uh, the musical. And here we have an evocation of it from, you know, the Rat Pack in the... I've forgotten when it was made. Late, late 50s, early 60s. Early 60s, isn't it? An evocation of 1930s Chicago. And I think um, he's a fantastic Robin Hood. Absolutely superb. And so engaging with those... Medieval texts of Robin Hood's exploit, I think, allows us a window into the imaginative world of ordinary men and women and schoolboys, remember our schoolboy from Lincoln, of late medieval England and Scotland. Thank you very much. <laughs>